Let's uh, bow our hearts and uh, just commit this study to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Once again, we thank you that it is living and powerful. And Father, we know that your word changes us. Lord, it changes the way that we see the world and it changes the way that we see ourselves. Father, your word is like a mirror. And as we look into your word, we see ourselves as we really are. And Lord, we see that we need a saviour. But Father, we thank you too that your word is that which reveals to us who that saviour is. And Lord, tells us of the wonderful promises and the plan and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, now as we continue our studying of your word, Lord, we just pray your blessing upon this time. Father, give us ears that will hear and hearts that are ready to receive. Lord, that we would grow in knowledge and grace for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so back at the beginning of this year, we started a journey through the Bible. Um, We're going through the entire Bible in one year. We're up to session seven, and we're going to be looking at the the rest of the book of Leviticus, really picking up from where we left off last time. Last week, we were looking at the uh, offerings um, that are prescribed. The children of Israel at this point in their journey have left Egypt. We've seen that. We've gone through the book of Exodus, uh, and they're encamped around the base of Mount Sinai. Um, And they're there. They've received the law. Uh, which we saw in the book of Exodus. And of course the law was that which was designed to allow them to get close to God, essentially. It was, it was that which they had to do to be right with God, to be righteous. But following on from the book of Exodus, we have the book of Leviticus, which immediately introduces all these offerings which are there for when you break the law. So clearly God already knew that Man couldn't keep the law. And actually when you get to the New Testament, and particularly the book of Galatians, you find that the whole purpose of the law was to show that we cannot do it. The law is there to show God's righteous standard, to show that God is holy, and that we, by our efforts, can never meet the standard of a holy God. And that's why we get to the book of Leviticus and we looked last time, we'll mention in a moment, the specific offerings. All of those point to Jesus Christ. Now, at the same time as we're reading through or studying through the Bible, uh, many of us are trying to read through the Bible uh, through this year as well. Um, we're using a, a Bible reading plan uh, that's been put together by Ray Comfort. There's many, and I encourage you to use any that you feel you can do. Um, but uh, we're using that particular one as a fellowship um, because it's kind of keeping step with what we're doing on the Sunday mornings. Um, so hopefully yesterday evening you'd have finished the book of Leviticus uh, and we're about to, in our daily personal studies, move into Numbers which we'll be looking at next week, uh, next Sunday morning. So, But for now, uh, let's g- get into the study for this morning. So Leviticus, I'm really picking up from chapter 6 onwards. Last week I read this quote from Dr. Chuck Misler. He said, It may come as a surprise to discover that there are a number of biblical experts who regard the book of Leviticus as the most important book of the Bible. That's a staggering statement, because we've got all sorts of wonderful books in the Bible, and yet many of those that have studied it look at Leviticus as being, certainly some would say the most important, others would say of profound significance. And Leviticus is one of those books, if you're reading the Bible through, 
It's one of those books that gets a bit heavy, it's a bit stodgy sometimes. But it's not really a book to be read, it's a book to be studied. And the more you study it, the more amazing this book becomes. The last time we were looking at these specific offerings that Israel are commanded to offer, or at least I say commanded, it's a a free will offering. If is the way it's prefixed in chapter 1. If any man will bring an offering. And the first offering is the burnt offering. And it really speaks of complete surrender. Of course, for us as Christians, our scripture is Romans 12.2, which tells us that we should offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Totally given over to God. Jesus, of course, was totally given over to the will of the Father. We then have the grain offering. Also sometimes referred to as the meal offering, or sometimes the meat offering. Uh, Old King James language, meat, just simply means food, sustenance. Um, So grain uh, is what was being offered, and they were to make these certain cakes. The idea was, it was the offering of the best they had. This wonderful flour that had been ground down, no lumps, no blemishes. And of course all of those things speak of the perfection of Jesus Christ. And for us, we also find that we are the first fruits, uh, that verse from 1 Corinthians 15, of those that the Lord is calling. And it's incredible to think that the Lord would look at us as the best, the first fruits of that offering. But of course, it's not because of what we have, but of what he's done in and through us. The peace offering, well, that really is a fellowship offering. And that was to be eaten the priests would eat part of that offering and the one offering would also eat part of that offering within the tabernacle um, grounds and so on. And it was something they would do together. Of course, Ephesians 2.14 tells us that our peace is through Christ and we have that fellowship with him. He's our high priest. We see, And then we have the two sin offerings, if you like, this specifically the sin offering, which was to atone for our sin before a holy God. And then the trespass offering, which is very much to atone for the effects of our sin on others. And there's lots of details given about these. All of these, though, point to Jesus Christ. And we find in the book of Isaiah, uh, in chapter 53, that Jesus was made an offering for sin for us. So every one of these uh, offerings that we read about, lots of details, lots of repetitiveness in there, and lots of shedding of blood. And it's one of those things you think actually is a bit uh, unpleasant at times to read that. But that's the point, because sin is unpleasant. It, It really is a high cost. And if you imagine bringing a lamb to the door of the tabernacle, laying your hand on the head of that lamb, And then having that lamb's blood shed because of your sin. That would change the way that you view sin. If you realize that that sinless offering or that sacrificial offering was in your place so that your blood doesn't have to be shed, it would change the way you view sin. Sadly today we live in a world that has just so played down sin. Sin is kind of almost a joke word and people think it's a fun thing to sin. Of course, before a holy God, sin is still abhorrent and it costs the death of his son. Well, as we go through, we've seen that, that first section. And actually, the, those offerings really run into chapter 6. 
Um, and uh, we then start to get to the laws of the offerings as well. So chapter 6 of Leviticus, uh, we'll mention in a moment, deals with those laws. Then we go through um, chapter 8, 9, and 10, looking at the anointing of the priests, the atonement for the nation, and then a very interesting situation that occurs with two of the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who learn a lesson the very hard way. And then the next section, really, from chapter 11 through 15, we get various laws that deal with kind of the external side of things. Talking about the clean and the unclean, circumcision, leprosy, and other ceremonial hygiene laws. We'll mention some of the details about those as we go through this morning. Uh, And then the final section, um, Leviticus chapter 16, is a chapter devoted to the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, uh, you may be familiar with that title. Uh, this one day of the year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer this offering. Uh, chapter 17, there's laws regarding blood. 18, uh, there's some moral laws. And then 19 through 22, some other laws. We'll mention a few as we go through. And then chapter 23, a rather significant chapter, deals with and details the feasts of Israel. And there's so much in there, we'll have a look in a little while. And then to round out the book, there's some other laws that are given to the people. So let's just jump into kind of chapter 6 and look at these laws regarding the offerings. Um, not going to go through the, the details of them, but the first portion we have is the law regarding the burnt offerings. And then the meal offerings, the daily offerings, the sin offerings, the trespass offerings, and the peace offerings. All of these are to be... Um, codified and explained what they were to do, how it was to be done. Um, Laws regarding the fat and the blood. And all again, these things may seem strange to us, but the fat represents the very best. Um, And uh, it's interesting the typology, the way these things are used. We mentioned last time some of those things. Um, Leviticus chapter 7 talks a bit about the priest portion. You know, the priests were to live off the offerings that were brought. And it's uh, something that Jesus speaks about in the New Testament, that a laborer is worthy of his wages. The same kind of principle. Um, and those that teach the gospel are to live off the gospel. Uh, is something else that we find Paul uh, tells us in the New Testament. But just looking into Leviticus chapter 7, it's interesting to note there, we have, this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Now, You'll notice in verse 13, it says, Besides the cakes, he shall offer for his offering leavened bread. Now, if you've been kind of paying attention, you'll have realized that up until now, pretty much everything has unleavened bread. Leaven speaks of sin, typically in Scripture. Leaven um, would puff up uh, and so on, cause the bread to rise. So unleavened bread is this typical um, part of the offering that that speaks of having no sin. And yet with the peace offering, we find that there's leavened bread that is to be included. Well, interesting, Chuck Minister says this, he says, Peace with God does not depend upon the believer attaining sinless perfection. I just think that's just a great little summary of that whole situation. That our peace with God isn't dependent upon our being sinless. It's dependent upon Christ being sinless. It's dependent upon the sacrifice that he offered in our place. And it's just interesting that we have leavened uh, bread into that offering. 
Also notes that we then have a summary in Leviticus 7, verse 37 and 38 of these laws that we've just, would have just reviewed, how we've read through all those details. It says, this is the law of the burnt offering, of the meat offering, or grain offering there, and of the sin offering, and of the trespass offering, and of the consecrations, and of the sacrifices of the peace offerings which the Lord commanded Moses in Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the children of Israel to offer their oblations unto the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Notice that the peace offering is listed at the end. I think that's quite significant because really our peace with God, all of those other things are there, and specifically speaking of that which Christ accomplished, um, our peace with God comes at the end of all of that offering, all of that bloodshed. Um, That's the cost of our peace, our reconciliation with God. In chapter 8, verses... um, uh, four through six. It's interesting. We get to the consecration uh, of the priesthood. Uh, it's interesting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly was gathered together unto the door of the tabernacle of congregation. And Moses said unto the congregation, "This is the thing which the Lord commanded to be done." And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Just as an interesting aside, in chapter eight, we notice that Aaron has this oil poured upon him, this anointing, before any blood is shed. But when he gets to Aaron's sons, that the anointing oil is put on them after the blood is shed. Aaron, in this particular example, is a type of Jesus Christ. And Aaron didn't need to be cleansed in the sense of sin, or Jesus didn't need to be cleansed of sin before that anointing came. He was already sinless. But for the priests, those that would serve, and speaking of ourselves, we are a royal priesthood, we're told. We are to have, obviously, that anointing oil, but that can only come after the blood has been shed for ourselves. Just an interesting type and shadow that we see there. This word, consecration, um, the Hebrew uh, implication is to fill the hand. That's what was going on here. It was to put into their hand. And we actually read that in chapter 8, um, that part of the offering is to put into their hands. Um, but it's interesting, that means we have to come empty-handed. I love that because so often people try from a religious point of view to bring something before God. You know, we think that we can offer something that will appease God or, or whatever, or, or pay for some of our sin. No, we've got to come totally empty-handed. If we're to be consecrated, set apart for God and for the things that God is going to do, we can't bring our skills and our talents and our abilities and say, well, Lord, I've got this, I could do this for you. That's not the way it works. We have to come empty-handed. And then the Lord will fill us. The Lord will equip us. Um, there's nothing that we have. Our righteousness, we're told in Isaiah, is as filthy rags. That's the best that we have to offer, is just as filthy rags. Now notice, we're going to see a little process here, um, which is interesting because it kind of sets a principle that we see echoed throughout Scripture. Because Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and we notice, first of all, they're washed. They're cleansed, washed with water. Uh, Ephesians speaks of the bride of Christ, the church, is being washed with the water of the word. But to start with, they're washed. Then we notice, when we get to uh, 
chapter 8, verse 7, they're clothed. So the priests are then clothed with this special clothing that's provided for them. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then they're anointed with this oil. So this is the process um, that they go through. It's interesting then, so we get washed, clothed, and anointed. And of course we are washed by Christ's blood and through his word. We're clothed in his righteousness and then anointed by his Holy Spirit. It's a lovely picture, again, speaking of us as a royal priesthood as we go through these things. We read this this morning, our psalm we shared together, Psalm 133. Behold how good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And if you've read this before, or you read it this morning, you didn't quite understand the connection, it's speaking of this particular point in Leviticus that we're looking at right now as the priests were going through and Aaron was going through this process of being consecrated, set apart. And what we find the psalmist saying is it's, it's a wonderful thing when brethren are in unity together. And unity is not just an agreement to, to disagree on some things or agree on something. Unity is being in the same mind and the same judgment. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 10. That's what our unity should be. It's amazing how many churches have this kind of, you know, well, we can agree to disagree. We won't talk about doctrine because it's divisive. No, no, no. Doctrine's not divisive. People that stray from the doctrine are divisive. And actually, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, we should avoid people that, that don't hold to those doctrines, that stray from those doctrines. But doctrine is not a problem. Doctrine is, in a sense, uh, what binds us, what unites us, what gives us the, that clarity and understanding. There's nothing wrong with doctrine. And we should be united in our understanding of God's word. Because ultimately, the Holy Spirit is our teacher, the same teacher for each and every one of us. So again, it's like this, this dwelling together, it's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirt of his garments. These are the garments that he's been clothed with, ready for this ceremonial consecration, setting apart. This oil, this anointing oil, setting him apart for the work of ministry. And we're told it's as the Jew of Hermon, Hermon the uh, mountain in northern Israel, and as the Jew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore interestingly the garments uh, the priests would wear there's a number of things that um, uh, image actually that picture uh, is uh, actually a, a life size dummy uh, that's in the temple institute uh, in Israel uh, with the clothing that they've already made and prepared ready for the high priest Israel are getting ready to start their offerings and their sacrifices again. They've got all of the utensils, they've got all of the, the furniture, as it were, the things that are going to go into the temple. They're getting ready to rebuild their temple. And it should come as no surprise because Paul and Peter and John and Jesus all spoke of a temple being rebuilt in the last days. And as I say, right now in Israel, the Temple Institute, they are taking this very seriously. They don't look at it from a New Testament perspective, of course, the Jews, but they are looking at it in terms of getting their sacrifices and their sacrificial system back up and running. And um, they've got these, uh, these garments already prepared. 
But it's interesting, there's a, there's a tie and a lot of uh, commentaries and commentators um, link some of these things together. Um, certainly uh, linking what we see the priests wearing alongside the armour of God uh, that we're given. Um, it's interesting that the linen sash uh, seems to represent the shield of faith, that which goes across uh, and protects us in a sense. Um, the blue robe, uh, which would go around their waist. Uh, you can just about see this robe that would go around the waist there. Um, symbolic very much of the belt of truth. Uh, the ephod, many believe, uh, is symbolic of the shoes of preparation, this readiness uh, being prepared. Um, the ephod, uh, within this, this, uh, this kind of breastplate here, uh, this, this, the ephod here with these stones uh, in it, would represent the whole of the nation. Um, the breastplate, of course, being the breastplate of righteousness itself. Um, the band, the ephod band, uh, symbolic of the sword of uh, the spirit. Uh, the turban, um, speaking of the helmet of salvation. And the headband, uh, commentators think, again, likens to praying always. Again, uh, that, that whole mindset uh, of continually praying. And, uh, you know, as I say, if you look for different commentaries, you'll see different uh, commentators put this different ways. But it's interesting, that, uh, as you look at the details, you start to see these things start to come to life. And uh, the clothing and the details we have for the priests in Leviticus really is a model of that which we see um, for the church in the New Testament. Verse 18 of chapter 8, and uh, we read, he brought the ram for the burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it. And Moses sprinkled the blood upon the altar round about. And he cut the ram in pieces. And Moses burnt the head and the pieces and the fat. And he washed the inwards and the legs in water. And Moses burnt the whole ram upon the altar. It was a burnt sacrifice for a sweet savour. And an offering made by fire unto the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. And he brought the other ram, the ram of consecration, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the ram. So this is all to do with this consecration, setting them apart. And he slew it, and Moses took of the blood of it. And this is an interesting thing that I wanted you to just kind of just note here. And he put the tip of it, so this is the blood now, um, that Moses takes some of the blood, and he put it upon the tip of Aaron's right ear, and upon the thumb of of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot so this blood is applied to the ear to the thumb of the right hand and to the great toe of the right foot it may seem very strange to us but let me just carry on he brought Aaron and his sons and Moses put the blood upon the tip of the right ear and upon the thumbs of the right hands and upon the great toes of their right feet and Moses sprinkled the blood upon the altar round about what we see here is a pattern that we find repeated throughout Scripture in many, many ways, in many places. It's even repeated, actually, in the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. Um, typically referred to it as the Lord's Prayer. But this pattern, let me try and uh, uh, explain it, because it's really unlocked for us in Psalm 37. Psalm 37, you may be familiar, trust in the Lord and do good. So shall thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. So we have 
the various elements here. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. In fact, doing all of that, there is a natural result, and that is the Lord will bring forth your righteousness. Now, of course, in and of ourselves, we have no righteousness, but the righteousness that we're to be clothed with, just as symbolically for the priest, is the righteousness of Christ. Now, the connection with these things is that the trusting in the Lord, that's our thought life. That's a decision that we make. It's a moment-by-moment choice. Our minds are consecrated in a sense. And that's the blood being put on our ear. It's what we hear. Who are we going to listen to? Well, the word says that we shouldn't rely on the things that we think we know. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 tells us that. But we should trust in the Lord. Lean not on our own understanding. So this blood that's being put upon the ear, symbolic of the hearing... And of course for us we should hear the Lord, we should trust in Him. The blood upon the thumb, on the right hand, well that's delighting ourselves. Speaking of our work, the things that we do, what is it that you do that you enjoy? Well, the things that we should do are the things that should bring glory to God. We should delight ourselves in God, in the things of God. It's interesting to to note, if we delight ourselves in God... He shall give us the desires of our heart. A lot of people think that if I delight myself in God, then I can get that nice sun seeker in Paul Harbour. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that if we delight ourselves in God, he'll give us what we want. It's saying if we delight ourselves in God, he will put within us the desires that he wants us to have. He will give us the desires of our heart. And that's what we want. Because our hearts are deceitful. They will lead us astray. But of course... If God is directing our path, if God is directing our heart, well then it will be for his glory. And then committing thy way. That's our walk. That's where we go, what we do. You know, all the decisions that we have to make in life. That's the blood on the toe. Committing our way to the Lord. And what we're told is that if we are consecrated like this, so that we're trusting the Lord, the blood on the ear, if we're delighting ourselves, the things that we do, you know, just again to say, you know, what do we do in our spare time? What are our hobbies? You know, how do we choose to unwind, for example? Do we choose to sit down with the Word of God and put some praise music on? Or would we rather just put the telly on and watch some telly? You know, what are the things that we delight in? So, again, the blood of the thumb, delighting ourselves in the things we've got, the things that we do, and then committing our way, our walk, the blood on the toe. And as I say, this pattern you will find throughout Scripture in numerous different situations, numerous different ways. But it really starts here, back in the book of Leviticus. So our minds, our walk, and our work, and our walk are all to be consecrated to the Lord. But the wonderful conclusion is that if we do that, He will bring forth our righteousness. And that's just a wonderful promise that we have. Just as the sun rises in the morning. Something you can't stop. If you do those first three things, God promises that he will bring forth that life in you, that godly life, that Christ-centered life. Chapter 9 is interesting. Uh, We read that, that God sets this fire ablaze. 
It says, And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. An incredible response. So this, this fire is kindled by the Lord. And this fire comes from out from, from the tabernacle and consumes these offerings that are there. If the fire is from the Lord himself. The glory of God, of course, is manifested in these things. And it's interesting to notice the humility of the people. They fall on their faces. They recognize the authority of God. It's incredible in the, the, the church at large today how everybody is kind of God's buddy, God's friend. Um, and of course, we know that we can have this relationship with God, that he's our father. And that Jesus is uh, the, the firstborn among many brethren. And there is this kind of relationship, and yet he is still God. And he deserves respect and honor. Now, the reason I highlight that in chapter 9 is because when we move into chapter 10, we read this. And Nadab, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein. And put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is that which the Lord spoke, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. This is an incredible situation. Nadab, Abihu, they decide they're going to offer something to the Lord. It's an act of worship. And so they get their own fire. And they come and offer it before God. And this fire then comes out and consumes them. They die. And Moses effectively says to Aaron, don't mourn. Don't be sad about this. This is God showing you something very important. What do we learn from this? Well, the whole of this really is speaking of worship. It's that which we offer God. And we can't offer God that which is not kindled by his fire. If we try and offer God that which is kindled by our own desires, our thoughts or whatever, or our emotion... How many churches, you know, we have the, the nice subdued lighting and we have the music and all the right things. And then out of that emotional feeling, we then offer praise to God. Well, that's exactly what Nadab and Abihu were doing. They were doing something from themselves and offering their own worship, as it were, kindled by their own fire. But God is saying he wants our worship to be kindled by his fire, by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way we can be pleasing to God. We can't offer worship that is acceptable and glorying to God by our effort, only through the working of the Holy Spirit. And that means yielding ourselves. That's why in John's Gospel, Jesus says, God is spirit and those that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not just an emotional response. Worship is never and should never be an emotional response. And sometimes the hardest times to worship are when we don't feel emotionally inclined to do so. But that's why the word speaks of a sacrifice of praise. In Leviticus 16.12, the Lord will actually 
clarify and codify there that incense, which speaks of our offering, our worship, was to be burned by holy fire. Again, not by anything that we can bring. And the question this morning is, what fires our worship? Is it our relationship with God? Is it the Holy Spirit working within us that just gives us that desire to worship God? Or do we get in those situations, like sadly so many churches do, where they get kind of whipped up into a frenzy because they've got the right music and lighting and all the other things surrounding it, everything, the setting's right. You know, there's a number of Christian events I've been at and uh, know of, and you, you get at the end of the meeting a very kind of a, a adrenaline-filled kind of a situation and somebody says, put your hand up if you want to become a Christian and people put their hand up and everybody gets so excited all these people have given their lives to the Lord and a week later where are those individuals they're back in the world nothing really changed all that happened was they were just excited because of the emotion of the moment you know there's no repentance in those situations never is repentance spoken of A really important lesson for us there in Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus 11, changes theme a little bit. We get to these kind of cleanliness, dietary, hygiene laws and so on. Um, up until now we've been focusing on the offerings and the priesthood and so on. But now we're going to consider the people. We're going to change from instructions for our worship to instructions for our walk. Now... Discovered around about to dating back to 1552 BC, there's something called the papyrus ebers. Um, these were documents that were found, Egyptian documents, that listed things that they would do regarding on various symptoms uh, and various problems that they would come up against. Up against one of the problems, if you were going grey, okay, they had a solution for this, and to prevent the hair from turning grey, anoint it with the blood of a black calf which has been boiled in oil or with the fat of a rattlesnake. I know it's not easy to get a rattlesnake, but you know this is what they suggested you do. If you were losing hair, when it falls out, one remedy was to apply a mixture of six fats, namely those of the horse, the hippopotamus, the crocodile, the cat, the snake, and the ibex. Now again, Ibex, not very easy. You'd have to probably travel to the Middle East to find one of those. Um, but to strengthen it, uh, then you could anoint it with the tooth of a donkey crushed in honey. Uh, one of the queens, uh, uh, Shishek uh, uh, of Egypt, uh, this addressing she used, it consisted of equal parts of the heel of an Abyssinian greyhound, though they are very rare. Uh, date blossoms, uh, asses hooves boiled in oil, and of course that preparation was intended to make the royal hair grow. If you had an embedded splinter, uh, you could treat it with worm's blood and ass's dung. Uh, of course, uh, since dung is loaded with tetanus spores, it's little wonder that lockjaw took a heavy toll on splinter cases in those times. Um, the properly outfitted supply cabinet and medicine cabinet uh, advised by these papyrus ebers would include lizard's blood, swine's teeth, putrid meat, stinking fat, moisture from a pig's ears. Who wanted that job, really? Milk goose grease, uh, ass's hooves, 
animal fats from various sources uh, and excretion from animals including humans, donkeys, antelopes, dogs, cats and even flies. This is what educated people at that time believed would help them with their problems. Now, just to make a, 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 a side comment here, because it's at this time when this treatise was written that Moses was born in Egypt. Scripture tells us that Moses was learning all the wisdom of the Egyptians, Acts 7.22. So it's incredible that when Moses gets now to penning that which we we're about to look at in Leviticus, he doesn't incorporate a single current medical idea that they had, which of course we now know are misconceptions. None of those things found their way into the Torah. That which we find here is incredible. Let's just look at some of the things that the Bible tells us. He doesn't, first of all, God never gives us pointless laws. So when you look at these laws, and as you read through the Bible, there's no pointless laws. There's nothing for the sake of it. There may be things you don't understand. Well, that's different. But with a little bit of study, a little bit of diligent study, very often you'll find that he is creator and he does know best. And incidentally, because the Jews followed these rules... They were much healthier than their neighbours. Just read this quote to you. It's from a man by the name of uh, Mr. Kellogg. He said, When the plague was desolating Europe, one out of four was stricken. The Jews so universally escaped infection that this, their exemption, the popular sus- um, suspicion, was excited to fury. And they were accused of causing the fearful mortality among the Gentile neighbours by poisoning wells and springs. In other words, because the Jews were following the word of God, they weren't getting sick. And people said, well, therefore, you must cause the problem. You must be the ones that are bringing these, these problems upon us. Exodus fifteen twenty six. we read there, uh, and said, if you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord your God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that heals thee. See, the Lord was promising health to Israel if they followed him. And this wasn't just a trivial promise. This was a, a genuine, true promise of the Lord if they obeyed. Exodus 23 verse 25 says you shall serve the Lord your God and he shall bless thy bread and thy water and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7 verses 12 and 15 we read wherefore it shall come to pass if you hearken to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he swore unto thy fathers and the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which you know upon thee but will lay them upon all them that hate thee Proverbs 4, verse 20 to 22 says, My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. This is God speaking now. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. So these are some of the promises that God gives us for obeying his laws, his rules. I just want to mention something before we look at some of those rules as well, highlighting the difference between appetite and hunger. Hunger 
is a God-given desire triggered by a biological need for necessary food. That's what hunger is. But appetite is a craving triggered normally by sight or taste or smell. There's a big difference between the two. Hunger is something that is God-given. It's right, it's proper. But appetite is something very, very different. And much of what we eat is the result of appetite, not hunger. How many times do we see an advert on the telly or we go into a supermarket and we see something you know, displayed and you think, oh, that looks nice. You know, probably ten minutes after a meal, you can still go in and it still looks nice. And you know, that's the difference. Matthew 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. There's an interesting scripture in the context here because we're saying that hunger is something that is natural and is necessary and is something that God has put in there. Well, a spiritual hunger is exactly the same. It's something that God has put in there. And blessed are those people that spiritually hunger and thirst because they shall be filled. Galatians 5.24 tells us those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's appetite. We could spend a lot longer talking about that. But let's look at some of these things. God pronounces clean that which has divided feet and choose the cud. These uh, cloven feet and choose the cud. These are the two things specifically in regard to, to livestock of the things that they were allowed to eat. Why? Well, feet, it speaks of a walk that's separated. And they that go over and over to digest food speaks of obviously chewing the cud. It's what cows do that ruminate. And they keep going over and over. They swallow it and they bring it back up and they swallow it again. I think is it sheep have five stomachs. And they go over and over and over. And that's how we're to be with the things of the Lord. Meditating on his word. Meditation, of course, is to the soul what digestion is to the body. And that's why there's a practical reason, but there's also a spiritual reason why we have these uh, cloven feet and uh, chewing the cuds uh, separated here. A doctor, Gordon S. Tesla, said, obviously the indiscriminate eating patterns of omnivores like pigs make them disease carriers. Pigs are known to carry up to 200 diseases and 18 different parasites and worms. Pigs have more incidences of arthritis than any known animal in the world. Interesting, isn't it? might think about that next time you have a bacon sarnie. Mr. Kellogg again said, One of the greatest discoveries of modern science is the fact that a large number of diseases to which animals are liable are due to the presence of low forms of parasitic life. To such diseases, those which are unclean in their feeding will be especially exposed, while none will be perhaps found wholly exempt. Another discovery of recent times, which is no less import bearing on the question raised by this chapter, in Leviticus, uh, is the now ascertained fact that many of these parasitic diseases are common to both animals and men and may be communicated from the former to the latter. What he's saying is, because we haven't kept to the rules and the laws that God has set, then actually we have brought upon ourselves all sorts of physical problems because of our dietary situation. Now, 
Just to clarify, in the New Testament, God makes it very clear that all food is acceptable. We can eat whatever we want to. We don't have rules. We can have a bacon sandwich without a guilty conscience. But God still put these laws in Leviticus for a reason. And it was for his people to keep them separate. And there is some good advice here. Just a couple of things to highlight. These you shall eat of all that are in the waters. Whatsoever has fins and scales in the waters, in the seas and in the rivers, them shall you eat. So things like uh, bass, cod, haddock, halibut, herring, mackerel, perch, sole, salmon, trout, tuna, those they could eat. They're rich in omega-3, which is uh, the good cholesterol. Gordon Tesla says again, the good cholesterol attaches itself to the bad cholesterol in the arteries and carries it back to the liver for cleansing. How did Moses know all of these things? To get the right categories, the right groupings. It's incredible. We're given a list of the, the things that all these that have not fins and scales in the seas and the rivers and that moves in the waters and living thing in the waters. They should be an abomination to you. So these are things they weren't to eat. Shark, swordfish, catfish, shrimp, lobster, crab, oyster... Again, Gordon Tester says, these scavenger fish contain high levels of bad cholesterol, mercury, disease, worms, chemicals, and parasites. Talking of some of the birds, um, that, uh, they, uh, and these are they which uh, shall have an abomination among you, the fowls, they shall not be eaten. And they were given some here, the vulture, the kites, the raven, owl, and uh, going on, little owl, cormorant, great owl, and you get the list. You can read through this at your, your leisure. But the interesting thing, these are scavengers. They feed on flesh. They feed on something else, another living creature. The edible birds, though, that are listed, things like chicken, turkey, duck, quail, pheasant, sparrow. Sparrow, of course, wouldn't provide much of a meal, I appreciate, but... So, and these you may eat of every flying creature. Uh, and they're given a whole list of things that, that are going on here. Uh, notice here we have the bald locust. Uh, you have to look real close uh, to see that. After it's kind of the beetle. Now, um, most commentators think that's referring to the cricket because of the context that it's in here. And also the grasshopper. Um, may not be particularly appealing to you, um, but you mentioned in Matthew 3 verse 4, John the Baptist um, lived of eating locusts and wild honey. Um, yeah, there's lots of things that God has provided for food that actually will be good for us and things. And God again says, and this is really the, the kind of the, the key point here, for I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore sanctify yourselves. This is what it's all about. Again, just to clarify, I'm not saying to go home and just you know, throw a whole load of things away from your, your, your cupboards and your fridge. We're allowed to eat whatever we want. God makes it very clear. But the rules that God gives are for our benefit. And there's nothing meaningless. You know, again, the book of Romans tells us the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. For I am the Lord your God, and you shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any manner of creeping things that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is kind of the, the central, the pivot point of the book, according to many commentators and scholars. This really is the theme of the book, that we should be separate. We're called out. We're called to be different. 
It's interesting to note, though, of course, that God is interested in even the things that we eat. But how much more, therefore, our eternity? You know, wherever the children of Israel went, whatever they ate, there was a continual moment-by-moment choice to be made. Are they going to follow God? Are they going to go their own way? And it's the same for us. Every moment of every day, we're making choices about why are we going to do that which is honouring to God in our lives or not. Well, to jump through some of these chapters, chapter 11 we saw deals with sin by external contact, that which could defile you from the outside. Chapter 12 will deal with sin on the inside. Interestingly, Psalm 51 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. There's a real problem with that which is inside. Chapter 13, we move into this very interesting area um, in the, the Hebrew, uh, Zareth, or leprosy, sometimes also referred to as Hansen's disease. Um, and almost certainly in the context here, it's used to denote this general skin disorder. But leprosy is a disease that attacks the peripheral nerves. Left untreated, it will cause permanent damage to the skin, nerves, limbs, and eyes, and so on. Lepers were considered outcasts, and colonies were obviously formed to try and isolate the spread. Leprosy, of course, is a type of sin. Leprosy, untreated, will kill you. Sin, untreated, will kill you. And there are so many parallels that we find throughout Scripture. A man by the name of George Rosson said, Leprosy cast the greatest blight that threw its shadow over the daily life of medieval humanity. Fear of all other diseases taken together can hardly be compared to the terror spread by leprosy. Not even the Black Death in the 14th century or the appearance of syphilis toward the end of the 15th century produced a similar state of fright. Early in the Middle Ages, during the 6th and 7th centuries, it began to spread more widely in Europe and became a serious social and health problem. It was endemic, particularly among the poor, and reached a terrifying peak in the 13th and 14th centuries. It says, leadership was taken by the church, as the physicians had nothing to offer. The church took as its guiding principle the concept of uh, congregation as embodied in the Old Testament. Uh, this idea and its practical consequences are defined uh, with great clarity in the book of Leviticus. Once the condition of leprosy had been established, the patient was to be segregated and excluded from the community. Following the precepts laid down in Leviticus, the church undertook the task of combating leprosy. It accomplished the first great feat in eradication of disease. So the church took the initiative because of what the word of God said. Interesting to note as well, and we'll maybe mention this a bit more next week in Numbers, but lepers were always to be put out of the camp. You've got to understand how dangerous this disease is. And if you allow that disease to fester, if you say, oh, but we're supposed to be loving, we're supposed to be kind, we can't put somebody outside, you're going to damage everybody. That was the real situation in the camp of Israel with leprosy. And it's no different with sin. If you tolerate sin within the body of Christ, it will cause the same sorts of problems. And Paul 
deals very decisively in the book of Corinthians with an individual who is in unrepentant sin. They are put out of the church. Now, to most people, that's a, well, the church shouldn't do that. No, no, no. If you read the Bible, the church should absolutely do that for the health of the body. Dr. William Thompson says, it comes on by degrees in different parts of the body. The hair falls from the head and eyebrows, the nails loosen, decay and drop off, joint after joint of the fingers and toes shrink up and slowly fall away. The gums are absorbed and the teeth disappear. The nose, the eyes, the tongue and the palate are slowly consumed and finally the wretched victim sinks into the earth and disappears. That's leprosy, but you know sin is exactly the same. We just don't see the physical effect all that often. But spiritually, that's exactly what happens. James 1.15 says, Then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Leprosy is a type of sin, of course. It's an all-consuming disease. It begins in a small way. It progresses slowly, but surely. In some cases, it will endure for many years before resolving in death. The initial absence of pain is one of its characteristics. However, it keeps the person sad and restless. Leprosy causes separation from God, and leprosy is thought by some to be hereditary. Interesting, isn't it? That we can sometimes catch sin from our parents, maybe things that they did, maybe they the way they viewed God or rejected God sometimes. Chapter 15, we move on, and we see that not only are we prone to catching sin, we are also carriers. And it deals with this whole issue of of leprosy in a different way here. That which we do affects others more than we realize. We're told that there is none good. We've all fallen short of God's standard. And leprosy will soon become visible. There are other sins that we might be able to hide for a time. But chapter 15 addresses the secret sins, if you like. It's interesting, just a couple of quotes. I thought these were very insightful. Um, this uh, man, Goethe, says, I see no fault committed which I too might not have committed. Samuel Johnson said, Every man knows that of himself which he dares not tell to his dearest friends. Count de Mestre said, I do not know what the heart of a villain may be, but I only know that of a virtuous man, and that is frightful. Shakespeare said, Go to your own bosom, knock there, and ask your heart what it does know. Another comment says, Why is there no man who confesses his vices? It is because he has not yet laid them aside. It is a waking man only, who can tell his dreams. And Oswald Chambers put it this way, he said, there is no criminal who is half so bad in actuality as you know yourself to be in possibility. You know, sin really is a deadly disease. And that's why we need to pray for each other, because none of us are exempt. None of us are in a position where we've dealt with sin, where we've sorted it all out. And all of us have secret sins, things that we're still struggling with, things that the Lord is working on in our life. But just like leprosy, if it goes unchecked and we don't deal with it, it will bring forth death. 
And it will affect the rest of the body. That's why we need to be open with each other. Okay. Chapter 16, we get to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Um, Some of you may be familiar uh, with these details, but it was one day every year that they were to deal with national sin. It was to be the seventh month, the tenth day of the month. And it was the only day the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Uh, You may remember some of you, um, either from history or from first-hand experience, back in 1973, the Yom Kippur War, as it was referred to. There was nine Arab nations that attacked Israel. And this battle, a big part of the battle took place in northern Israel, in the Golan Heights there, a place called the Valley of Tears. I had the opportunity to go there a few years back. Uh, there was 1,400 Syrian tanks versus 180 of Israel. Israel had no chance, and yet they held off till reinforcements arrived. Interestingly, the UN didn't call for peace until the tide turned in Israel's favour. Huh, no surprise there, really. So, as we move on, chapter 17, 18, as I said, there's laws regarding blood. And there's a a key verse, chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Such an important verse. So many other scriptures, in a sense, link back into this. Uh, And all of our, uh, our salvation really is underpinned by this. The fact that Jesus gave up his life. His blood was shed. To purchase our freedom. In chapter 18, we have interesting, uh, let me just read this, uh, and verse 1 to 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein you dwelt, shall you not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whether I bring you, shall you not do. Neither shall you walk in their ordinances. You see, the book of Leviticus is all about being separate, being called out. You know, really what it's saying is don't try and blend in. You know, people misapply what Paul says in the New Testament. I've become all things to all men. So now they go down the pub and they have a drink with their friends so that they can be all things. No, 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 that's not what the Bible is saying. Don't do after the doings of the land. Don't be like the people that are around us. You know, we are the called out ones. And the title of this book, the Hebrew title, is from the opening words, And He Called. We've been called out, and we should be different from this world. Leviticus chapter 19 through 22, there's a number of other laws I just want to read this to you because I just just want to highlight something quickly. Um, In fact, if you want to just turn in your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 21. I'll pick up verse uh, 16. The Lord spoke unto Moses and said, Speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be of thy seed in their generations that has any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. Let's just talk about bringing his offerings and so on. And whatsoever man he be that has a blemish, he should not approach a blind man, a lame man, he that has a flat nose or anything superfluous, 
or a man that is broken-footed or broken-handed or crooked-backed or a dwarf or him that has a blemish in his eye or a scurvy or scabbed or have his stones broken if you're not sure what that means ask your mum and verse 21 says and no man that has a blemish of the seed of air in the priest shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire he has a blemish he shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God you know that was the way it was if there was anything wrong with you you couldn't for a start be a priest and offer these things you couldn't come before the tabernacle well how about us this morning how many blemishes do we have and yet we're allowed into the holy of holies because of this incredible exchange that took place where Christ took upon himself all of our sin all our transgression and instead we've been clothed with his righteousness it's an incredible contrast when you see how holy our God is it's amazing that we have been given such free access as the writer to the book of Hebrews says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace in a time of need those the remainder of that uh, portion deals with those further laws. And then chapter 23, which is really where we're going to conclude, just deals with the, the uh, feasts of Israel. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Now, we find that we have 52 Sabbaths, okay, each week, the Sabbath. Then the seven days that were to be set aside for Passover, including the related feast there, we'll mention those in a moment. There was another day for the Feast of Pentecost, as we refer to it, Shavuot. There was Yom Terah, or the Feast of Trumpets, another day, Yom Kippur, we just mentioned, the Day of Atonement. Seven days to be set aside for Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, and then the eighth day of assembly following that as well so all in all we have 70 days that were assigned for israel as feast days and there's lots of interesting things we could comment going off on that on why the 70 but there's a specific group of feasts that we're told of we have the feast of passover it will be on the 14th of the month of nisan that was when the uh, children of israel left egypt the following day on the 15th of that month would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the Feast of First Fruits, which would be on the Sunday that followed that, uh, those other two feasts there. Fifty days later would be the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And then in the autumn of the year, in the seventh month, we'd have the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now these are all very interesting, but in the New Testament, Paul says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day. That's where we get our word holiday from, a holy day. Or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. And Paul says this, Which are a shadow of things to come, but the body or the fulfillment is of Christ. All of those feasts speak of Jesus Christ in some way or another. And when we look at the prophetic implications, well, the Feast of Passover speaks of the fact that Jesus became our Passover for us. The Feast of Unleavened Bread 
that Christ was put into the ground. Christ died. Christ was buried. And then the Feast of First Fruits, Christ rose again on the Feast of First Fruits on the third day. An incredible fulfillment of these feasts on the exact days. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. Which scriptures? Well, the feasts are a great place to start. All speaking of what Christ accomplished. We've mentioned in closing just a moment the Feast of Pentecost. Many think that it speaks of the birth and possibly the rapture of the church. I'll come to that in just a moment. But the Feast of Trumpets is very interesting. Um, We have the trumpet judgments in Revelation. We have the Feast of Atonement, which seems to speak of the blindness of Israel being removed. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, when Christ will return and tabernacle among us, to dwell among us at the second coming. Now, as a side study, if you want to take this on yourself, the book of Joel, I believe, is a model that gives us the breakdown of these last three feasts. Joel chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, 11, seems to deal with this period that will be covered under the Feast of Trumpets, linking with Revelation 8 and 9. And then the atonement, when Israel's eyes are opened, when they realize that Jesus is their Messiah, Joel chapter 2 verse 12 through to chapter 2 verse 32, and seems to link in with Revelation 12. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, Joel chapter 3. Again, Revelation 16 and 19 seem to deal and link in with these things. So the book of Joel, a very interesting book. When we get there in our study, we'll uh, spend a moment just commenting on some of those things in more detail. But in closing, I just want to just take you through, just very quickly, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Pentecost. Acts 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, that was this feast. J. Vernon McGee said, the words fully come could be translated fulfilled. When the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled, they were all together in one place. Leviticus 23, this portion we're studying, says, You shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you were brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seventh Sabbath shall be complete. Even to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, show you number 50 days. So from the Feast of first fruits, we number 50 days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. Okay, meat offering is grain offering that's to be offered. So the first instruction was that this new, the Hebrew word is minka or minkor, is a new offering that was to be brought, something that was fresh. So translated meats in the King James. But it was a sacrificial offering, usually bloodless and voluntary. The feast therefore speaks of something new that was to be voluntarily presented to the Lord. And be thinking about the church in this as well. We're told you shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves, two tenth deals, there shall be a fine flour, there shall be bacon with leaven, they are the first fruits unto the Lord. I think this is interesting. You should bring out of your habitations. That which was to be presented was to come out of the houses of Israel. And I think this is interesting as well, because where did the church come from? 
the church came from out of the house of Israel effectively the early church were Jewish these two wave loaves two tenth deals well two in scripture is the number of witness and some commentators feel that we have also the idea of a double offering being suggested or possibly a double fulfilment to be fine flour carefully ground, sifted to remove all impurities bran and husks and everything get rid of all that stuff what are we told in Ephesians? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, just as this fine flower was to be. This is the only feast specifically where leaven is to be used. Leaven, as we said earlier, speaks of sin because it corrupts by puffing up. Whereas Israel were to be separate from the world. They were to be uncontaminated. But the church is to grow to maturity, as Philippians 2.15 tells us, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Israel would be kept separate from the world. But the church grows in the world. Dake in his commentary says, No bread made with leaven could be burned upon the altar. So the object was not a burnt offering. This was a present to Jehovah from the best produce of the earth. Because the church is not destined to be consumed on the altar of God's wrath. But instead, it's a gift from the Father to his Son of those he, that's the Father, draws out of the world. And finally, we're told that they are the first fruits unto the Lord. And that's what we're told in James 1.18. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And notice, you shall proclaim on the self-same day that it may be a holy convocation unto you. You shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. No work was permitted. When a person is born again, they enter into their eternal rest in Christ. No longer are they to labor by their own efforts for reward, for Christ has done it all. And the writer to the Hebrews comments, he that is entered into his rest he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his you know as we enter into this rest in Christ there is no more striving it's just that wonderful rest and assurance of our salvation in him so the feast of harvest feast of Pentecost certainly very teasing Suggestions that it's speaking of the church. We have the first three feasts speaking very much of Christ and his accomplished work. The Feast of Harvest seemingly speaking of the church and then yet to come and be fulfilled those last three feasts which speaking of Israel, the restoration of Israel and the return of their Messiah. There's a very interesting portion in chapter 26 
where God says, if Israel disobey, then he will allow them to be dealt with by the nations around them. They'll be, um, God will bring his judgment upon them if they break his commandments. But he says, if, after I've punished you, you still don't obey, I will multiply your punishment by seven times. And four times in chapter 26, that's reiterated in verse 18, verse 21, verse 24, and verse 28. 18, 21, 24, and 28, the reference is there. And when we get to the book of Ezekiel, we'll see just how precise prophecy is and how those prophecies have been fulfilled, that God did bring judgment upon Israel with the Babylonian captivity. They still didn't fully repent. And as a result of that, God multiplied their punishment by seven times. And you'll find that to to the day, those promises and prophecies were fulfilled in 1948 when Israel became a nation, and in 1967 when they got the land of Jerusalem, or the, the, the city of Jerusalem back again. Amazing prophecies, but again, that uh, link there with Leviticus 26. Hopefully, stuff to encourage you to search and to keep reading His Word as we grow together. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you as we, we see these incredible pictures and types. And Lord, particularly as we're reminded how abhorrent sin is. Lord, as we consider leprosy and how deadly that would be. Oh, Father, we are just so mindful that you came and that you prescribed a cure. That you healed the lepers. And Lord, you've healed us. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done. We thank you, Lord, for these models that we've seen with the feasts that you fulfilled in incredible detail, these things. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would just stir our hearts and our spirits. Lord, get us excited about your word. And as we read your word, oh, Father, may we be in health. Father, may we be in health spiritually growing in knowledge and grace. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. Amen.